From the beautiful city of Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Hey, hey, welcome to Film Forward, everybody, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. I am your host, Nicholas Ibarra. And to say that I am honored to be joined by today's guest would be a grand understatement. He's edited dozens of incredible films, including Clockers and one of my personal favorites, Mo Better Blues. He is an Academy Award-nominated producer, an Emmy Award winner, and he is the director of the new documentary, MLK FBI. Mr. Sam Pollard, thank you for being here. My pleasure, Nicholas. How are you doing today? Very well, very well. MLK FBI explores the U.S. government's surveillance, harassment, and I'll just go ahead and say, the attempted character assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. There's been a lot of films made about Dr. King, obviously, but so few, I think, touch on this aspect of the government surveillance and none quite as in-depth as this film. What inspired you to tackle this chapter of Dr. King's life? Because it's an important one. I had just finished the film titled Two Trains Running, Mm -hmm. about the 1964 search by these young white men for two blues icons, Sunhouse and Skip James, with my producer, Ben Hedin. And we were looking for a new film to do. And Ben had just read this book by David Garrow that he had written about uh, the FBI surveilling and monitoring Dr. King. And he said to me, he gave me a call after he finished the book, he said, I think I found our next film. So I read the book, and I completely agreed with Ben. I had known David Garrow because he had been one of our primary consultants when I worked on Eyes on the Prize, too. Mm-hmm. So we reached out to David, took an option on this book, and we went to Pittsburgh, where he lives. We brought a camera crew to his house, and we spent four to five hours with him talking about motivation for the book, the genesis of it, you know, the material in the book, which really became sort of framework to how we're going to tell this film. The evolution of Dr. King as his young minister in Montgomery, Alabama, the Montgomery bus boycott, how he went on to become a major, major figure in the civil rights movement, and how the FBI and J. Hoover thought he was the most, one of the most dangerous men in America because they felt he was undermining what they described as American democracy. Right. Sounds familiar, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. It really does. I learned a lot watching this film. A lot I knew, a lot I didn't know, but one thing that was really interesting was finding out about J. Edgar Hoover's, you know, type of man that he wanted for this bureau, the G-Man. That was really interesting to me. And it explained a lot, not only about this situation, but it explained a lot about our country. You look at the type of man that he was targeting that he wanted for the bureau. Well, I mean, think about it this way, Nicholas. I mean, I grew up during that time and the notion of a man in America was a white man, a certain height, a certain weight, you know, right. who could take care of himself, you know, it was notion of a male American male masculinity. Right. So so when he's looking for FBI agents, he's not looking for any black men. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right, right. I mean, because when you think about it, what Hoover was resisting was the idea that black men and black women who have been on the periphery of America's mainstream were all of a sudden want to be front and center. They want to be integrated to American society. He was used to seeing the images of black men be either cowardly or frightened of their own shadow, like Stephen Fetchett or Willie Bess or Hattie McDaniel or Butterfly McQueen. Or he was looking, he was a fearful of black men who might be, you know, too male, too aggressive, you know. I mean, you see what happens when a black man is seen as too aggressive. They're lynched. 
So mm-hmm. this was not the image of a black man he wanted to see with Dr. King leading masses of people, both black and white, to march in Washington to say we want inclusion, we want to be a part of the American mainstream, we want to be integrated, we no longer want to be segregated. Available a boat, available sitting in front of the bus. That was like, what? These people are crazy. Aren't they happy with where they are? I mean, that's what his fear was. And his fear was symbolic of a fear of much of white America. Absolutely. And I mean, that's not only the fear that was felt back then, but you kind of feel like and get a sense that that's what we're going through now. Well, people, exactly. of, people of color, you know, it's just they're afraid of us people of color getting a leg up or becoming more successful and changing their view of what the country should be like. Think of it this way, Nicholas. Look at those images last Wednesday of people marauding, attacking the Capitol building, you know, smashing in windows, looking mm-hmm. to hang Mike Pence. Right. That same kind of attitude, the same kind of attitude you saw in, in countries and cities across the country from the beginning of Jim Crow up until the 60s. Right. You know, white communities, like, let's give you an example, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. This growing black community in Tulsa, Oklahoma became a threat. And they thought that a white woman had been accosted by a black man. What did they do? They went to that black community, that vibrant, economically sound black community, and they said, you can't let it exist anymore. They destroyed it. I mean, some people, you know, it's amazing to me that when people watch the news last Wednesday, they thought that was some sort of anomaly. That's not an anomaly. That's what America is, man. That's part of America's DNA. Sad. Very sad, but true. There are some really magnificent interviews in the film. And I love the choice to not show them. You know, we just hear them. Talk to us about that decision. Was it something that you knew you wanted to do from the get-go or was that something you discovered in the editing room? No, right from the beginning, Ben and I were talking about aesthetically how to put this film together. One of the things I first said to Ben was, you know, I think this is a film where we should keep everybody off camera and we should just let the footage engage mm-hmm. the audience, you know, look at the archival footage, the archival stills, pull the audience into the movie, you know, because I think it would just make it more dramatic. And that was always the plan. Now, when we proposed this to some of our possible funders, we got some sort of like negative, a little bit of negative feedback. You really not going to have anybody on camera? And so to play it safe, quite honestly, we shot all the interviews on camera, just in case after we put the first cut together without them on camera, we got so much pushback, we relented. But luckily, everybody liked it. And I think what was the, the real nice thing about being able to have shot them on camera was that in the editing process, our editor, Laura Tomaselli, she was the one who had the great idea in the epilogue to put them on camera for the summation, which I yeah. thought was like a stunning and smart move. We didn't want them on camera, and we didn't for most of the film, but just at the epilogue, they come on. And the only one that wasn't on camera was because the only was no audio interview was uh, former FBI director James Comey. Right. Yeah, I thought that was a great choice. And and the decision for most of the film not to have them on camera was a great choice because it made MLK the lead. We can see what he's going through. We can, you you know, you can see when he's when he's down, you can see when he's up, you can see when he's inspired. And and the same with J. Edgar. It was a really brilliant choice. And I felt like I got to know Dr. King more through your film than any other movie I had watched. That's good, man. Good. (laughs) And you were an editor for years and you've you've transitioned into into directing do you still feel your editor brain working when you're in the director's chair do you if so do you embrace that or do you have to tell it to shut up sometimes or well my editor's brain never is turned off man it's on yeah. <laughs> it's on all the time so you know i mean it's it's really one of the positives of being a director now is that i can i think like an editor you know when i'm in the editing room i'm always thinking about 
you know, we've shot these interviews, we've made these selects, and how do we put these sequences together and make them really come to life? So, yeah, my brain's always on in the beginning. Now, the one thing I don't do, though, one thing I don't do is when I'm, in the, when I'm directing, I never sit behind editors and tell them where to make cuts and this is what you should do and this is how you should do it. Because when I was an editor, that was one time, the one thing that really would get me upset if I had a director sitting over my shoulder all day telling me where to make the edits and what to do. Because then I felt I wasn't an editor anymore. I was just an assistant. Right. Backseat editing. Yeah, which I don't do. Yeah. What I like to do is let the editor work, come in every couple of days or once a week, look at what they've done, give them my notes, give them direction, and walk away and let them work. I mean, I won't sit there. If I feel like I had to sit there and tell the editor what to do, I should edit myself. I I don't need to do that. And one of the other things that's really good when you're directing and you're watching other editors work, they can come up with things that you didn't think of. Mm-hmm. And that's part of this wonderful process of filmmaking. That all of a sudden you walk in the room and you probably told an editor to cut a sequence a particular way or this is what your suggestions was. And they show you something completely different and you think, wow, that's better than what I even thought of. You know, And that's a good feel. Oh, it's great. I, that's one of my favorite things. <laughs> when somebody comes, somebody comes up with a better idea than I did. <laughs> On a recent episode of our podcast, we were talking about Spike's Do the Right Thing, which is my favorite film. We were talking about how just horrifyingly relevant it is today. Too relevant. And watching this film, you can't help but feel the same way, as we kind of alluded to earlier, the attack on democracy and and fear. Oh, yeah. Just wanted to get your input on what you think we can take away from this story and this film today here in 2021 and a scary crossroads. Yeah, I think what you need to take away, what we need to take away as an audience is that America tends to, like a lot of places, tends to to repeat its history. And if we're mindful, if we really look at this film, we look at where we are as a country today, maybe it'll give us pause to say, oh, we have to try to figure out how to do better. You know, we have to figure out how to be a better country, how to be better to each other. I did not, you know, have this divide with us against them, you know. It's a challenge, you know, it's a challenge because we all have different points of view and different attitudes and different political and social philosophies. But there can always be some middle ground if you want there to be. You know, and what's happened in this country over the last four years, quite honestly, in my opinion, we've had a man in office, in the highest office in the land, who's basically been all about dividing us, not uniting us, you know. Right. By constantly blowing that dog whistle. It led to what we saw last Wednesday. Sometimes I am looking at the world or looking at the country, especially over the last four years, and can't help but feel a little lost. So to look for guidance, I'll binge read The Best of Us. You know, I'll just, I'll I'll binge read Dr. King or I'll read about Cesar Chavez or I'll just, I'll look for inspiration just to kind of like revive some hope, (laughs) you know, and, and some direction in me. Making this film, you're living and breathing Dr. King for an extended period of time. What effect does that have? on you day to day as you're kind of just like living with I think for, for me what it does is this simply you know, is that it makes me understand as we were putting this film together in the editing room I felt one of the important things to show that Dr. King was a human being mm-hmm. he was a man who had his own flaws and you know, had his own issues and concerns and, and, and I think we need to understand the weight of everything he had on his shoulders you know he was here a young minister who was pulled into the civil rights struggle in Montgomery, Alabama who goes on to really beat the drum to break down the barriers of segregation in the South, and even in the North, you know, who's leading a group of followers from Fred Shuttlesworth and Dorothy 
Cotton to White to Walker, Ralph Abernathy to Clarence Jones and Eddie Young were all basically foot soldiers creating this nonviolent protest. Here's a man who knows that because of what he's doing, because he's front and center in this new movement, he's going to be constantly watched and surveilled. He had to know they were being watched by the FBI and JB. He didn't know the extent at first, but he probably came to know how far they would go. Here's a man, a young man who receives a Nobel Peace Prize. Here's a young man who's told, who's, who Jago puts in the press and says he's the most notorious liar in America. Here's a man who basically by 1967 says, you know, it's not just about the civil rights of black people, it's about understanding human rights. And maybe we should really reconsider why we are in Vietnam, which he knew then would have a tremendous impact on this relationship that had been very close with him and Lyndon Baines Johnson in the Johnson administration, who then becomes his enemy. You know, had been his ally, now becomes his enemy because he goes against Johnson's needs to want to keep us in Vietnam. So imagine all this weighing on his shoulders, plus his own very complicated personal life right. that he's dealing with. I mean, it has to be, I mean, it's amazing that he, you know, he, he had to deal with so much and he handled so much. And, you know, sadly, his whole life was, you know, taken from us when it the Lorraine Motel in Memphis in 68. Well, your film portrays and paints all of that very beautifully, Mr. Pollard. And thank you for making it because, I, like I said, I learned a lot and uh, I really enjoyed watching it. And I implore our audience to go check it out. MLK FBI is now playing in select theaters, also available on VOD. And if you live in L.A., it's playing at the Arena Cine Lounge Drive-In, which is a great way to check it out. This episode is being released on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So uh, celebrate Dr. King. Go watch this amazing film by Mr. Pollard. Thank you, sir, so much for doing this. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Thank you all for listening to Film Forward, and we'll catch you next time. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time.